This is the Oanda Podcast. Brought to you by Jazz FM's Business Breakfast. A very warm welcome to another Oanda Market Insights podcast brought to you by Jazz FM's Business Breakfast team. The entire series is available on iTunes and wherever else you find your podcasts, of course, as well as online. I'm Nick Howard sitting in for Johnny Hart on what's been another tumultuous week. We'll be discussing that Bank of England rate hike, Chinese retaliation to Trump's tariff policy, Apple hitting a trillion-dollar market cap, and the just-announced US jobs figures. Joining me in the studio from Oanda is market analyst Craig Earlham, and down the line this week from Toronto, not Singapore as usual, Steve Innes, head of Trading Asia. Craig, let's kick off first with um, the Bank of England rate hike. This is only the second one since the financial crisis and was, it has to be said, one of the more controversial decisions that the uh, the bank has made. There was a lot of uncertainty ahead of time, even that they would do it at all. What did you make of it? Would you have made the move? Yeah, it's only the second rate hike since the financial crisis. But interestingly, it's also taken interest rates to the highest level since the financial crisis. We have to remember that the rate hike which we had late last year was effectively an unwinding of the post-Brexit rate cut that we had. So 0.5% was long seen as the base level that the Bank of England could go to in order to try and support the economy. And it was only these extraordinary measures taken in 2016 which forced them to go that little bit lower. So now what we're seeing from the Bank of England is a effectively them saying we are moving away from post-financial crisis uh, emergency measures and we're heading back to normalisation. And as you say, it's been controversial, mainly because the economy isn't necessarily firing on all cylinders and also because there's so much uncertainty surrounding Brexit. Uncertainty which may possibly, if we're feeling optimistic, be somewhat cleared up in a few months' time or could take a massive turn for the worse if we start to head towards no-deal Brexit, which would force the Bank of England to reverse course. So why not make that rate hike if we were going to have one then, when we knew a little bit more? Well, it depends who you talk to. If you talk to the Bank of England, it's because they're saying that the labour market is tight, that inflation is uh, is above target, and the fact that we are seeing unemployment so low and we are clearly seeing evidence, and there is no dispute in that, there is evidence that there is a shortage of uh, skilled labour and therefore employers are having to pay more in order to attract staff, which is typical when we are seeing a tight labour market tends to lead to inflationary pressures down the road this is the argument that they would give the problem that many people have with that is that's also accompanied by a weaker economy by a number of data points which suggest it's not going to improve anytime soon accompanied again by the fact that we've got all this brexit uncertainty and then you add on that the fact that yes we are seeing tight labour markets right now but there's nothing to say that this is because the economy is doing well well, actually, it would suggest to me that this is happening because of temporary factors, just like the currency one was previously. This is happening because we have had less immigration from the EU. This is happening because we have had people potentially leaving the country uh, since the Brexit vote. I don't think this is a sign of a strong economy. It's my feeling that the Bank of England is doing this because it wants to get on with raising interest rates because it feels behind the curve with regards to other countries. The US is well ahead, Canada is well ahead, etc. Even the ECB is now catching up with the Bank of England, which is incredible considering they had a crisis all of their own post-financial crisis and it also says to me that they wanted to raise interest rates earlier in the year they bottled it in may because the first quarter was weak and they didn't want to be seen to be misleading or being wrong in may uh, when they first were going to act so they followed it in august rather than hold off till november and have their credibility questioned so effectively they prioritized credibility 
over what in my view is the right decision and they are praying now that we don't that things don't take a turn for the worse in negotiations which will force them to reverse course which will be extremely embarrassing that seems to make the decision something of a political move, something of a, um, a face-saving exercise. Um, we've also seen um, Mark Carney, the governor of the Bank of England, talking about the, his um, fears of a no-deal Brexit. He says the risk is considerably high and is talking about some of the uh, the banks forecasting on that. It would mean, according to him, um, unemployment um, up at uh, 9%, um, property prices being cut by a third, and um, growth of the economy economy down to uh, minus 4%. Now, you know, are, are we to take these as credible threats? And if so, why put up interest rates? Or is this more Project Fear? See, I'm a fan of Mark Carney. I think anyone who's listened to these podcasts previously will know that I'm a fan of Mark Carney. I know he's been given a very difficult challenge uh, with the bank, with the job at the Bank of England. One, he probably didn't foresee when he first took the job because his stock was extremely high, we have to remember, when he became the governor of the Bank of England because of the job he did with the Bank of Canada. Now, the job he's had is difficult and he's handled some things badly. He has... Uh, I, I agree. He had to give us some projections prior to the referendum vote so that people had an idea of what it was they were voting for. What he's not learned from this process and what no one seems to have learned from the Brexit process, the referendum process, is you don't just come out with your worst case scenario uh, forecasts. Now, this isn't to say that the worst case, worst case scenario uh, of what you've just said is uh, it is the actual worst case scenario but it does sound yeah, I mean, to it me like said, it's... we don't know the full modeling that the bank of england has done here i mean this could be a medium this could be the softest that uh, for all we know but we never seem to just get the range like here's the best case scenario post brexit here's the worst case scenario and it'll lie somewhere in the middle they always come out with very specific figures and the problem with that is when you edge towards the worst case scenario that you typically don't actually hit them and Everyone is questioning the bank's credibility and why have they done this to themselves again? Now, if we get a no-Brexit, no-deal scenario and we don't hit these figures and we don't come close to these figures, which is a possibility, then again, people are like, well, what's the point in you making forecasts? You are giving us no assurances. You're not raising rates when you say you're going to. Your forecasts are, are terrible. We can't believe you anymore. The experts are terrible. It's completely counterproductive from what I'm thinking. So, as I say, while I'm a fan of Carney, I do not understand why he keeps doing this to himself. Yeah, a case of uh, setting yourself up to fail to hit the bullseye. Let's move to company news. Apple, the biggest uh, mover of this week in terms of headlines, hitting their trillion dollar market cap, the first company to do so. Does this mean that uh, Apple is the best company in the world? It's certainly the highest valued. Yeah, it's um, it's certainly an interesting company. I mean, I think there's a number of uh, a number of great aspects uh, when it comes to Apple that we have to look at and really give them credit for. I think they have revolutionized the smartphone industry and they have been a leader in that for quite some time. Some would say they've taken the foot off the gas in recent years and prioritized profitability at the expense of innovation and it seems they are maybe taking uh, a more proactive approach on that more recently with the release of the iPhone X, which has been extremely profitable and also very successful for them. But they've done a lot of things right, and they've also diversified the company at a time when people want to look beyond the smartphone, which I think is responsible for around 60% of its total revenues. It's done well in the fact that with the X, they've managed to provide something innovative, but also very profitable because the margins have been higher because it really isn't a very much the top-end phone. The market share in the phone sector actually hasn't really changed that much. And in fact, I think this week they were actually uh, uh, usurped globally in terms yeah, of... by Huawei, so they're now in third place. 
So, and this doesn't seem to be an issue for them because they said, well, we've actually, our average uh, our average revenue from uh, phones has actually gone up because of this new top-end phone and the speculation that they could release effectively a, a larger model of the X with this latest one, which would cost more again and can ha- continue to help that. So they are generating strong revenue still from the phones, but they're also looking elsewhere. So the cloud business is one area where they are still a bit of a baby in it to be fair and one they could expand quite greatly on the services segment from the app store etc is still uh, is becoming increasingly profitable we look at the other components that they sell so the speakers the earphones they, 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 they are diversifying their product selection at a time when people are looking for them to justify this massive market cap so i think it is a sign uh, of success, but I think it's also, we have to remember, a sign of people's expectations of these large tech companies because right now the valuations are still uh, extremely high. And when we look at how tech companies have done over the past 12 to 24 months, it really has been an extraordinary rise. How much of this market valuation is artificial? I'm thinking of the hundreds of billions of dollars they've spent on share buybacks. But I think we have to remember that's part and parcel of this. They had huge cash reserves and they have been put under a lot of pressure to spend these cash reserves. And with these companies, there's three ways really in which you can do that which stand out. One is share buybacks and that's an easy way to to increase shareholder value because you straight away, you're taking shares out the market which makes those in the market more profitable, uh, more valuable should I say. There's the other way, which is paying dividends, which is maybe seen as less uh, a less profitable way or a less uh, financially uh, incentivized way of doing things. Although investors like a dividend, and it's only recently that Apple actually started paying dividends using these cash reserves, which work to its benefit as well. And the third is through investing in the actual firm. And I think it's quite clear that Apple is and always has been investing, if anything, previously very much prioritized investing and it's only really under the leadership of tim cook that apple has started to think about investors as well as innovation and i think right now he's trying to find that balance that satisfies everyone because as i said earlier there was a period for the last few years when people were wondering what happened to that innovation company that brought me the iphone that brought me the ipod it seems to start to slip away and others started to uh, maybe really challenge on the innovation front And we'll focus on um, tariffs in a little more detail in just a moment. But what about the impact of a trade war with China? Because, of course, most of their manufacturing is done in Chinese factories. Yeah, this is going to be a real challenge for uh, Tim Cook and Apple. It's going to be interesting to see how they get around it. There's no one's really released that I've seen any figures that suggest what impact it's going to have to actual exports of these iPhones from China to other areas of the world. Um, uh, It's going to be very interesting to see because there was nothing which I've even read since the results which suggested that they gave any forecast on what impact it will have on profitability. Uh, The chances are that if there is going to be a severe impact, then maybe they'll look to um, move manufacturing of these products. Remember, it's not just China that's a strong manufacturing hub in the uh, Asia-Pacific region. So there's other, I'm sure there's other countries which will be desperate to get their hands uh, on that manufacturing potential. But I think it's certainly a challenge for Apple. Yeah, not as if Apple is a company without some cash lying around if they did want to build some factories somewhere. This is the Oanda Market Insights podcast. You're listening to me, Nick Howard, from the Jazz FM Business Breakfast team. And let's go across to Toronto, where Steve Innes, head of Trading Asia, usually based in uh, Singapore. Toronto is not uh, part of Asia just yet. Um, But Steve, very good afternoon to you. 
The reason I want to talk to you right now is those non-farm payroll figures out of the US that you've had a close eye on. Can you just talk me through what we've actually got in front of us? Yeah, sure. Hi, Nick. Thanks for having us on. And hi, Craig. How are you doing? Um, Non-farm payrolls that came out, we had a a miss to the downside. Print came out at uh, the headline print came out at plus 157. Market expectations are around 190. Um, So we've seen a little bit of reversal on the dollar's fortunes on this, but uh, nothing too dramatic. Keep in mind, we're in the midst of summer, and I'm not sure how active uh, New York is uh, as far as traders go these days. I think a lot of guys are taking uh, taking this uh, as a vacation <laughs> period um, ahead of you know perhaps some some bigger risk events towards the end of August. But I think what we're dealing with right now is uh, is an issue that came out earlier this morning, and this is uh, really emanating from the PBOC, who seem to. Uh, quash the speculative moves on the yuan earlier today by imposing a 20 percent reserve requirement on fx forwards now the interpretation there is this should dent dollar long speculations and because uh dollar dollar yuan has been at the epicenter for most uh, trading over the past uh, uh, month or so we're starting to see a little bit of a reverse of fortune uh, on the g10 along with a lot of emerging market currencies where the dollar is selling off i think this is taking precedent over today's uh, non-farm payroll. So we're just starting to see a little bit of an unwind of some uh, longer dollar positions. And I think this may continue throughout the rest of the session today. Now, it has to be said that there was speculation for some time now that uh, the Chinese central bank was getting involved in its currency. I mean, does this confirm what people were already suspecting? Or does this mean that um, you know people are actually going to be more confident? Well, one of the things that the market was guessing at, and I I completely didn't buy into this, was that the PBOC was trying to artificially weaken the yuan. And I think the measures that they've taken right now are actually sending the signal um, to the markets that they are not looking to use a weaker yuan Mm. uh, as a ploy or a tool in global trade war. So I think this is a little bit, uh, how should I say, a little bit of a relief uh, for a lot of traders, but it's certainly not a relief for a lot of traders that were speculating on a weaker a weakening yuan because I think this move today has pretty much drawn the line they've basically come out and told us the line in the sand at least for the short term is going to be 6.90 on dollar CNH after we just broke that part uh, that that level earlier this morning the markets reversed quite aggressively close to the 6.83 level so we've come off close to 700 pips uh, on that currency and we're obviously feeling that knock-on effect on a lot of the uh, long dollar positions in the euro in the in the yen and, and of course in the Aussie dollar which carries a very uh, very high correlation um, to Chinese assets and Craig We've spoken in the past about uh, what uh, Donald Trump will be making of these kind of moves. Um, Presumably we'll be looking out for his Twitter feed a little later on. Yeah, I mean, I think he'll go pretty quiet on this front, to be quite honest, because this doesn't really support his anti-China agenda when it comes to trade. I think it's also worth pointing out on top of what Steve said as well. The, the, the reports, or at least what we're led to believe, is that China's uh, interfere, intervening to manipulate its currency. But there's actually a lot of reports out there that China's actually been intervening on the other side. It's trying to stop its currency devaluing too quickly. And it's they've been uh, pu- pushing through orders within the banks to actually take the other side of that trade. Because we have to remember, yes, a weaker yuan does make their exports uh, more... Uh, uh, more attractive and therefore people always think that a weaker yuan is therefore beneficial to the country but as we've seen over the years 
the yuan dropping off at a too quick a rate is actually negative for the country because it encourages capital outflows, which is something that the country absolutely doesn't want. So what Donald Trump says on Twitter isn't always factual. I think we have to uh, we really have to remember that the sure. a lot of the evidence that we do seem to see in these reports is actually that the central bank is trying to support the yuan, not devalue it, because in the longer term, it's far more da- damaging to the country for all this capital to move out of the country than it is for it to get this short term win over Trump. And Steve, we glossed over it a little there, but those non-farm payroll numbers coming, you know, what, uh, nearly 50,000 less than expected. Earlier in the week, we had the Fed holding on bank rate increases, but, you know, suggesting that we were heading towards more in September. Do you think they'll still be confident about the strength of the US economy? Yeah, I, I think um, if we look at there's a consistent theme that's emerging this year in the U.S., and that's basically that activity is strong and they should remain so uh, in the near term. Of course, we can have some one-off weaker numbers, um, you know, that, that 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 may sort of weigh a little bit negatively. But if we look at the cumulative effect of the economic data that has come out of the U.S. over the last, uh, you know, three to six months, it's very, very strong. And I think the Feds are def- definitely signaling um, the rate hike uh, in September. This is certainly not going to dissuade them. Uh, I think the economy is still doing really strong. And plus, I think they want to get ahead of the uh, inflation curve here. Inflation hasn't reared its ugly head, but it certainly has the potential. And I think this is one of the things that they want to get in front of. And also, they want to have some, they want to build up their uh, their their arsenal, their monetary policy arsenal by normalizing rates so that when they do have to reduce rates at some point down the road again and you know inevitably the, the, the economy is going to turn it's a cyclical cyclical event they're going to be able to use conventional monetary tools to do so as opposed to going into the bag of tricks like qe and and what, what whatever else um, they've come up with over the last uh, the last decade or so so there's a number of reasons but i think the the feds are really going to maintain the course despite the slight miss here on uh, today's non-farm payroll And we've seen Donald Trump and his team double down on tariffs on China. We're sort of going back and forth here, I realise. But, um, I mean, where are we precisely now then on a trade war? I think we're still at the tit-for-tat stage um, as far as trade war goes. Um, Right now, I think what Donald Trump is doing is trying to get in front of perhaps a a political ploy that perhaps China could use here by increasing tariffs on a smaller number of goods, keeping in mind that the trade uh, trade balances uh, going into China are roughly about 130 billion versus what's going into the US is roughly 400 billion. So by suggesting they could increase up to 25%, it sort of negates the possibility of China actually increasing to a higher level. And I think that's the purpose and why they're trying to get ahead of the uh, get ahead of any potential China retaliation. Steve, always a pleasure to speak to you. That's Steve Innes, Head of Trading Asia at Oanda, down the line from Toronto. And, of course, we heard from market analyst Craig Earlham, also from Oanda. This was the Oanda Market Insights podcast. I'm Nick Howard from the Jazz FM Business Breakfast team. You can catch up with more of this series and, of course, subscribe so you never miss a market moment online on iTunes and, of course, all other podcast providers. Just search for Oanda Market Insights. Thank you very much for joining me. I'm Nick Howard. Have a lovely weekend.
was the Oanda podcast from the team behind Jazz FM's Business Breakfast, a daily early morning 30-minute briefing for the day ahead. On air from 6am. Listen to Jazz FM on DAB, online or just ask Alexa.